Jesus came to say, all of you people that think you got it and you're obsessed with the law and you're obsessed with your books and you're obsessed with your synagogues and you're obsessed with the who's who, you're obsessed with whose rabbi is, is right, you're obsessed with which denomination is right, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, you're obsessed with all of this bullshit that doesn't matter. And I come to tell you, love God and love people as yourself. That's my dogma. That's my doctrine. That's what Jesus came to institute and to do. And everything was birthed out of that. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Spiritual Nomad podcast and YouTube channel. My name's Luke, and we have been in a series going through the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. If you're not familiar with what the Gospel of the Holy Twelve is, you can click that link and uh, learn about the origins of it. Today, we are going to take another little pause and just talk about some feedback that I've been getting in these videos series. So, I just want to talk a little bit about um, not really to focus on the negativity, but rather to evaluate some of the comments to bring out uh, some things that have been sort of rolling around and stirring in my head uh, based on reading some of the comments, uh, primarily from TikTok and Instagram. So I understand first and foremost that the gospel of the Holy 12 is highly controversial uh, because it's not in our canonized Bible. It's not in the scriptures that we have when you go to wherever on Amazon and order yourself a Bible. It's not in the New Testament. And so because of that, it is a uh, extra biblical writing. It is something that is a non-canonical text. And so anytime that you have that, uh, people are always going to get a little unsure about its validity and if it's really something that we should be learning from. And so I first and foremost want to talk about that. A lot of people have asked about where did you get this information from? How did you know that Jesus went to Egypt? How are you getting the information that you're getting? And it's all from the gospel of the Holy 12. And so I know that that's, you know, uh, unsettling to some, but I just want to say that I think that we, and by we, I'm even including myself into this Christian category. I love Christ. I love Jesus. I love the stories of Jesus. I love the life and the work of Jesus. Um, I love in the true essence of who Jesus was. I, I love who he is and what he represents. Uh, Christians, on the other hand, and the culture that has come up around that, um, I don't like at all. Uh, I respect it and honor it for what it is. It's helpful for some, but for me, uh, it's ran its course in my life. And so, uh, but I love Jesus and I love his teachings. And I want to say that I think that the biblical gospels that we have are really great and we should be learning from them. Uh, but just because something is extra biblical or non-canonical doesn't mean uh, that we can't learn from it. And like I was saying, I think that Christians, including myself in that category, uh, are prone to idolatry. We're prone to idolatry, and I would suggest and submit in response to the people who have commented on the videos um, or the clips that this is something that is uh, not biblical or not orthodox. I would argue that your attachment to orthodoxy and the biblical narrative has become idolatry. 
that it's become more important maybe for some of you, that it is in line with a particular tradition or a particular line of thinking in systematic theology, that the narrative and the story is seemingly more important than the essence of the message of the person in the work of Jesus. We've become so obsessed in the West about who agrees with who, who believes what, what statement of faith do you adopt into your life, what worldview do you get uh, from this sort of very linear look at the scriptures. And so what I want to submit is that people are prone to idolatry and idolizing thought and theory. They're idolizing essentially the, the image of something the story of something rather than the actual essence of the spiritual tradition of Jesus. So Jesus not once coerced anyone into believing a particular way. He says, believe in me, but he doesn't have a, uh, a well-oiled uh, systematic theology in terms of getting people to adhere to a particular doctrine or dogma. What we see is, is that Jesus has an agenda that goes beyond this tradition. It goes beyond all of these things. Jesus summarized the law when they asked, they were trying to corner him. They're saying, what are the most important laws? Essentially what they would say in today's Christian terms, Christians don't realize that they're mostly modern day Pharisees obsessed with the law, obsessed with the book, obsessed with the rules, and they've completely neglected and overlooked the essence of actually living out these things. Jesus says, you will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you, because it's about the life that you live, the essence of who you are, the fruit of your life, how you actually live and move and have your being in relationship with the divine, with yourself and with others. That's what actually matters, not what you actually say you believe in or articulate it to be true. It's the life that you live, who you are, the life that you actually participate in. That's the evidence of it. And so these Pharisees, they catch Jesus trying to say about which dogma and doctrine is the most important of the Old Testament. And Jesus summarizes it with basically what I just said. He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Another place he says, I give you a new commandment. This is what we celebrate on Maundy Thursday during Holy Week. A new commandment that I give to you. Love one another. That it's that simple. Jesus' whole doctrine, his whole dogma, everything that he's looking to teach is that of unconditional love, of forgiveness, of compassion, of mercy. Those who we think in religious societies, those who we think don't get it are actually the people that are most ripe to get it. This is what he is saying. And Jesus seems to have the most frustration and the most irritation with those who have put laws in place, rituals in place, rights in place that prevent people from the full realization and experience of living in union with God. They want to tax you. They want to get all of your, uh, uh, all the tithe, all of these things, all of these rules, regulations, and, and systems of, uh, of order that prevent us and keep us from the full realization of the direct relationship with God. And Jesus came to say, all of you people that think you got it and you're obsessed with the law and you're obsessed with your books and you're obsessed with your synagogues and you're obsessed with the who's who, you're obsessed with whose rabbi is, is right, you're obsessed with which 
denomination is right, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, you're obsessed with all of this bullshit that doesn't matter. And I come to tell you, love God and love people as yourself. That's my dogma, that's my doctrine. That's what Jesus came to institute and to do. And everything was birthed out of that. Whenever he meets the woman at the well, he does not condemn her for her sins. He brings to the forefront the reality of her life so that she may be free from the baggage that she has been carrying because we must name our shadow. We must name the things in our life that chain us and bring fragmentation into our life. But he doesn't condemn her for the lifestyle that she lives. He doesn't condemn her for being a Samaritan and believing differently about God than him. That's There's a huge divide between that. He does not school her based on verses found in his scripture. He brings to light the truth and the essence of who she is, and he outshines that with his presence and encapsulates that with ultimate love. And so Jesus uh, paints this picture that it is not as important about what you believe, but rather who you believe in. And I'd say the difference is what creates the lifestyle that you live. Because what you believe can certainly create this sort of lifestyle, but it's always going to believe if it's always what you believe, it's always going to come down to who's right and who's wrong, who's in and who is out. And really, it's going to bring definition in places that need no defining. Jesus tells us, you'll try to define it, but you won't get it. Lord, Lord, you'll say, but you won't even know me. Because to believe in Jesus, to live in the life of Jesus, is not to be marked by what your confessions are, but it's to be marked by how your expression is in the world. And so that's one thing that I wanted to say is that we as Christians uh, have been guilty of idolatry of the story about Jesus, not embodying the life of Jesus in our life. We are absolutely uh, condemned <laughs> with our own uh, stones that we pick up to throw at others showing and proving by that very act that we have not chosen the path of Christ. We have chosen the path of the Pharisee. And so to all the people that are probably not even listening to this or watching this that have commented on this, uh, on, on the videos about the Gospel of the Holy Twelve, the explosion uh, that has happened in your anger about these things, about the curiosity of the life of Jesus, is the evidence that you have clung to the image, not the essence of Christ. Christ has become this far removed story. I had some Mormons come to the door a couple weeks ago and uh, you know they were trying to tell me about the book and I always entertain the Mormon folks, don't I, Lindsay? I'm always, when they come to the door, I'm like, oh man. Sermon time, baby. You know, I, I, they, you know, they're here to talk to me about, you know, spirituality, and so I'd basically corner them uh, on my patio and uh, you know talk to them about all this stuff. But I was like, look, Jesus sent them out in two and two, but he didn't send them out with a book. He didn't send them out pointing people to the book. He didn't send them out pointing people to a system of thinking. He didn't send them out saying make converts necessarily. 
He sent them out two by two, teaching them to do all the things that he had done. He was replicating himself in them. And that's why he said, you'll do greater things than me. He empowered them to do the things, to bring the reality of heaven to manifest in this plane of consciousness. He gave them all authority to do those things and to go out. And he said, take nothing. And so I think in the same way, Christians and Mormons, they're all doing the same thing is they're pointing people to the book. They're pointing people to the rule. They're pointing people to the tradition. They're pointing people to what they have considered to be orthodox. And Jesus is saying, I'm not as concerned about that as I'm concerned as about the healing and wholeness of humanity. I'm not as concerned about the language and the words and the dogma. I'm concerned about people knowing the reality of the true identity of who they are and their eternal soul that has found place and incarnation in this body and realizing the fullness of who they are in this plane of existence. That's what I am concerned about, Jesus says, and essentially, and he sends them out to go to create this utopia almost of the kingdom of God breaking through into this present reality of realization of the fullness of the dimension of the kingdom that is at hand. And so we've gotten hung up on these ideas of the images of the pathways, not actually the thing. Okay. Now want to move on just a little bit, getting sidetracked on that. Uh, we need to be curious about Jesus. We, that's, I really probably should have started with this. I wanted to start with this initially, but I got on that rant. Um, we have completely lost our curiosity about who Jesus is. And if anything at all, let's say the gospel of the Holy 12 is just a complete sham. Some guy wrote it and just uh, trying to get people to go with his agenda of basically being vegetarian or, or what have you. Let's just say it's a complete, just false teaching. It's not true. You know, it isn't valid in any way, shape or form. Let's just say that it is. I obviously think that it's valid. Let's just say it's made up, okay? Maybe a little bit more like, it would be easier to say what's made up is the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus by Levi, right? That that it's something that was gotten from the Akashic records. Maybe it's easier to, to throw that out or whatever. But let's just say that the Gospel of Holy 12 is like the Aquarian Gospel and, and, and just something that isn't biblical or, or isn't divinely inspired or whatever. Let's just say that for experiment's sake. Fine. Still, even then, it piques our curiosity about the possibility of the incarnation of Christ. And that's worth something because we have gotten so stale and stagnant in our ideas and assumptions and expectations of who we know Jesus to be through our tradition and what we have been told is right and wrong about him. Because of that, it has completely stunted the imagination for the possibility of this amazing character and who he possibly could have been in this life. So maybe it's a, it's a sham about him being married or, or going to Egypt to learn from, from those people, which we're going to talk about Jesus, uh, what happens to him in the wilderness on his way to Egypt. That'll be next week's episode. But uh, let's just say all that's not true. At least it piques the curiosity and gets something shifted in our mind 
It, and at least maybe for evangelicals, it solidifies their narrative about Jesus even more. But they wouldn't know that if there wasn't the contrast of this, if there, if there wasn't the friction of a ulterior idea, an alternative idea about who Jesus was. That's what happens. That's why hardship in life is so important, because whenever it comes, it begins to refine and define who you actually are. It cuts away all the fat. It gets down to the real essence of something. And so at least what this does is it cuts away all the things that we know to not be true about Jesus for us. And so we can't just dismiss all of this or try to hide it or be book burners to prevent ulterior or alternative ideas we need to accept these, and just because we read something and it piques our curiosity and we're interested in it and we want to learn more about it, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're betting our whole life on it. For me, it, it, it doesn't really matter necessarily if it's to be inerrant or not. That goes for the scriptures or for the gospel of the Holy Twelve or, or any other Gnostic gospel, the gospel of Thomas, none of that matters. The point is, it's engaging my imagination and curiosity about the incarnation that I admire so much. And that's what's important. That's what's most important. Because the reality is, even if you want to go to the canonical scriptures, Jesus says, the spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. The spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. He does not say the spirit of truth will lead you to the scriptures. He does not say the spirit of truth will lead you to the right denomination. He does not say that the spirit of truth will lead you to be the best person and the good moral nice guy on the street. He says that the spirit of truth will lead you into all truth, capital T truth, the expansive, extensive truth, the nature of reality itself. And I love that it's not the Bible that gets us there necessarily. It's not a tradition that gets us there again necessarily. These are all paths and images and tools of awakening to this, but the spirit who transcends all of these things brings illumination and invigoration to the possibilities through the avenue of our imagination to think about the vast, amazing, awe and wonder mystery that is God. And so we have to say that all of these other things are images, and at least these other images and tools are picking at our mind and stirring us up and inspiring some level of awe and wonder in our life. And so one of my friends, my Australian friends commented and he's like, at least it gets me thinking about Jesus in a different lens. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. At least it does that. I think at its best, it shows us uh, a little bit more of a a deeper view into the life of Jesus, of what he valued, what he cared for. Because don't you think it's weird in the canonical gospels that you just have this dude who's born of a virgin who has magi and astrologers coming to his birth, bringing him gifts. And then it's like fast forward to age 12 where he's schooling these people of the law in Jerusalem. And then it's like fast forward to him meeting his cousin, John the Baptist. Have you ever wondered how weird that is that whenever Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like, Apparently, John had not seen him in a long time. They weren't close. And I come from a family that's really close. We had, uh, my dad's one of five brothers, and we had dinner uh, every Sunday night at my grandparents' house my whole childhood. And we had, I was 
My cousins were my brothers. I call them my cousin brothers because that's how close they were to me growing up, especially in ancient culture. Don't you think that all of that would have been so important to them to know all of your extended family? I mean, in the ancient world, family was everything. That was your, that was your lineage. That's your heritage. That's, that's your clan. That's your tribe. And John the Baptist seemingly doesn't even know Jesus whenever he shows up on the scene. And that's his cousin. Whenever his John the Baptist's mother and Jesus' mother were together, they left in wombs when they were with each other. They had this sort of connection. But Jesus, if the Gospel Holy 12 is right, was gone for many, many years, not a part of the family functions and not a part of these things. So again, stuff like that, it helps bring clarity to the canonical gospels because you're like, I've always wondered that. I wonder why. And I think it gives a more extended version. So anyways, at least it should breed some level of curiosity. Um, Next, last and final thing. Right, Lindsay, about the heresy piece, or uh, blasphemy piece. The blasphemy piece. My wife's in the other room helping me uh, remember all the stuff that I was going to talk about. People called me that I'm a blasphemer. They said that you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you're blaspheming God, that you are a false teacher and you are a false prophet, and, and all the stuff that people say and slur. Now, you got to understand, I don't care. I honestly, God, don't care. I don't feel like calling me a heretic or a blasphemer. That does not upset me like it would have five years ago. I mean, the spiritual nomad has been through major hiatus over the years. I started in 2017 and it's been in major hiatus because I've just straight up been uh, not wanting to deal with people's comments, but I've evolved to a particular place over the past couple of years. I just don't care. I, I believe what is true for me. I, I've lived enough uh, and experienced enough that I am not shaken by people's opinions, uh, whether I know them or don't know them. So people can comment all day that I'm a blasphemer, but let's bring a little definition to what it means to actually uh, be blasphemous, okay? Jesus says that you can only blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only element of the Trinity that you can blaspheme. So essentially he's saying that you can have all sorts of ideas about me and who I am. Jesus didn't write down anything. And his disciples didn't write things down for decades after his resurrection. And then he says about the Father. He doesn't mention anything about the Father, about the, the all, about blaspheming against that. He only says the Holy Spirit. And I think this is interesting for a few different reasons. One is the Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is, I would say, the eternal element of God's engagement and interaction with humanity. If we think in terms of the Trinity, and there's a whole bunch of ideas and thoughts and theories that we can do, but because this is really focused more towards a Christian perspective, if we want to embrace that idea of the Trinity, God's unshakable. God is the father, if you will, the father, mother, the all, uh, you know, Brahman, if you want to go with more of a Hindu terminology. Brahman, the all, the father, Yahweh is, is unshakable. It's, it's, he is, he, they, them, she, God, it doesn't matter. Pronouns don't matter here. Gender doesn't matter. It, it, God is beyond all of that. Is in the universe, unshakable. There's nothing, everything you see is the manifestation of God. Now, the manifestation comes through the vibration 
of God, the frequency of God. That's the Holy Spirit. What's emanating, the energy emanating from the Father is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit takes incarnation and manifestation into physicality, which is where we get Jesus, the Christ. It's where we get the Christ that is in us, the hope of glory. It's how we have the capability through the vibration of the Spirit to materialize and bring forth in this plane of existence the evidences of divine benevolent beauty. This is the the end, if you will, is, is the sun, uh, which is me, which is you, which was Jesus, which is creation, which is this plant over here. The end of the vibration, the, the manifestation is physicality in all of creation in the universe, okay? And Jesus seems to say that all of the, the final forms, if you will, can't be blasphemed. And the all, the Father, can't be blasphemed. So where it begins, the Alpha and the Omega, these things cannot be talked about in ways that get you, quote unquote, condemned or sin or uh, blaspheme. You can't blaspheme these. But this middle sandwiched in between peace, the connection between the two that is the Holy Spirit, that is what can be blasphemed. And I would say because that is the lifeline, that is the connection, that is the engagement between, in Indian terms, Atman and Brahman. So the Atman, who you are, Brahman, is God, and that connection, the vibratory connection, which in uh, our Christian worldview is the Holy Spirit, the connection between that brings life and emanation and fullness and comfort and power and authority, all of these things, that that spirit, that vibration, that reality, the connection to the invisible that is here that engages us and brings these things into existence, that's the only thing that can be blasphemed is this the Father, the Son, if you will, for all creation, and that middle place of connection. That can only be severed, if you will. I don't even think you can sever it, but that can only be spoken and blasphemed against not the other, not, not the Father, not the Son. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, to my wife's point, that is an extremely intimate thing. No one else can bring definition to your engagement with the Spirit, with the vibrational energy that connects you to the divine Him, Herself. That is something that is private within you. And the only thing that we can see then is the fruit of that spirit in you. So that's the only thing that we can really judge as being blasphemous is the fruit of something because you cannot truly know the essence of the relationship with the Holy Spirit, with the comforter, with that divine vibration. You cannot fully know that. You only see the evidences of that. And so the evidences of that, even as Paul tells us, uh, you know, in Galatians, it's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, generosity, all these things, these are evidences of the fruit of your connection to the Spirit. And this is why it can't be about doctrinal statements and beliefs. Because how many people blaspheme the Spirit who are clergy people, who are people of faith, who those, those who say they have connection to God and are full of God. We don't 
have the evidence other than the fruit of their life. And if we aren't seeing that fruit, it's safe to say, do they have the spirit within them? And Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit, not by what it says it is. And so I can't blaspheme God by talking about a potentially alternative gospel. I can't blaspheme God in that way. I can only blaspheme God by not living in tune and in union and living out the fullness of God in me, through me, and as me in the world. Our life, the actions, the way we actually live, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of him. The life that you live, that is the only thing that can bring and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I would argue how many Christians are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, not by the words they say. They sing the songs, you got your hands in the air, you know, way make a miracle work. You say all the stuff, but your life does not show the evidence of the nature of Christ. And that is actually blasphemy. Not me sitting in my living room talking about an alternative idea of Jesus. That's not blasphemy. You not living into the fullness of the realization of who you are is the only blasphemy that there could be. And that is still uh, questionable, if you can even be cut off from that at all. I think that it, what happens is that if you don't fully live in tune with that and you quote-unquote blaspheme the Spirit, well, you just come back to the earth school and try it again. So <laughs> there's infinite, uh, infinite lifetimes. To, to work through these things. So I'll digress, I'm running out of time on my camera here, and so I'll digress and say that um, blasphemy is something that is extremely personal, and it's extremely private, and you can't call someone a blasphemer by what they say. Because what we say is just what we say. How we live and who we are is the true essence of definition uh, for who and what we are in the world and the evidences of our connection to God. Peace and blessings, friend. We'll be back in the Gospel of the Holy Twelve next week.